1 Peter chapter 3 verse 1. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, Be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you are called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now when I hear verses like, Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands, and husbands, treat your wives with respect as the weaker partner, there's a discomfort with how that sounds. Uh, And I suspect a few of you may feel that way as well. Uh, To to say that wives should submit to their husbands is not exactly what you'd call a mainstream view anymore. You're not likely to hear it in wedding vows. Uh, They were until recent times. There was a line in there just for the wives. Uh, But it's now the kind of language that's seen as out of touch and out of date, even repressive. Uh, submission itself is a bit of a dirty word, isn't it? We we have an expression. We say that someone can be beaten into submission uh, in the sport of wrestling. Once you've got your opponent defeated, uh, you've got them in a position where the, the word that's used for it is a position of submission, uh, and it's not a comfortable position. They're not positive images that we associate with this word. So what should we do with these verses? Uh, Well, apparently, if you're in a church and you're the senior minister, the first thing you do is you make sure that uh, the passage gets allocated to the new assistant minister when you put together the preaching program. Thank you, Luke. Now, I guess we've got a few options. We, We could ignore these verses. We could perhaps dismiss them as something for a a different people, a people living at a different time, in a different culture, uh, that these things are no longer relevant to us. Um, and sometimes 
with a lot of qualifications, that might be the right thing to do, but, but we need to be very careful. We don't want to get into the habit of blotting out the bits of the Bible that we don't like the sound of, or to be dismissive of God's word because we find that part difficult to understand. As Christians, we should be ready to sit under the authority of God's word, um, even when it conflicts with the prevailing views of our culture. If this is God's word, then we need to listen to what God has to say to us, to order our lives around what God says is in fact best for us. If we really believe that the one who created us knows what's best, wants what's best for us, then really we shouldn't approach any part of God's word with with scepticism or with fear, but we should approach it all with gratitude. So, what should we make of this passage? What is this submission language all about? Well, last week uh, we saw how we might all be called to submit in certain circumstances, uh, citizens to our governments, slaves to masters, uh, and this section really is an extension of that same theme. Uh, So let's read those first couple of verses from chapter 3 again. Peter writes, Wives, uh, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behaviour of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now we can see here that Peter's talking about a specific situation where a woman has presumably become a follower of Jesus after she's gotten married and her husband has not. He's not a Christian. Now, we'll get to the submission stuff, but uh, I think first we should notice the intent of this instruction. The aim, the motivation here is for this Christian woman to one day see her husband come to trust in Jesus too, to win him over. And so Peter says, if he won't listen to the good news about Jesus, let him see the difference that Jesus makes in your life as you live that out before him. So that, as Peter says, he might be won over even without words. Now, a few qualifications to get out of the way first. Uh, As we've just seen, this is not talking to all women and all men. Uh, This is about a marriage relationship. And that really is the extent of the context that Peter's addressing. Secondly, this submission business, it's got nothing to do with inferiority. Uh, And we'll talk about this a little bit more later. The Bible does not teach anywhere that women are in any way inferior to men. Um, Just as you are not lesser than your boss at work or any government official that you may be asked to submit to at some point, this is about functions, this is about roles, not about capability. Thirdly, uh, submission does not mean that a wife needs to agree with everything that her husband says and does. In fact, the very situation that Peter is addressing here speaks to that. The wives that he's talking to already have a fundamental disagreement with their husbands when it comes to their worldview. These are women who confess Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. Their husbands do not. And so Peter's implicitly affirming a wife's right to disagree with her husband about even this most fundamental thing. But what does it mean? And is this even what Peter means to say? Uh, I suppose if this was the only place in the Bible where the Bible spoke like this, 
We might wonder if Peter perhaps misspoke or um, if there's something else going on here. But we do find this expression in a number of other places in the Bible, particularly Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3. It uses that exact same expression, that wives are to submit to their husbands. Let me try and define it positively. Uh, I define it as a willingness to support and affirm your husband in his role in leading your family. Um, Now, in all the debates about gender roles, um, they're usually broken into these two categories of egalitarian and complementarian. If you don't know what those words mean, it doesn't really matter. But just to put my cards on the table, um, you can put me in the complementarian camp, but I'm not terribly fond of the label. I think the Bible consistently upholds and celebrates the differences between men and women and insists that those differences are rooted in the way that we have been created, the way God made us. At creation, we see God make men and women equally as humanity, equal before God, one neither superior to the other, and yet God designates them these different roles in their relationship. Now, I recognise there's a diversity of opinion on these issues. Many Christian friends, many colleagues of mine take a different view. I don't presume that you're going to agree with me on this. Um, Let me say I'm more than happy to try and talk in more detail if you'd like that opportunity. I think that should be a standing thing, by the way. If you ever hear anything taught here or at any point, feel free to ask questions. Always happy for a conversation. And there's a lot more that could be said about these issues than we've got time to deal with this morning. Um, So we might just leave that there for now. But to return to the passage... Um, let's remember that what Peter wants to do is to encourage these Christian women to live these remarkable lives before their husbands that they might be won over. Now, I think what Peter's talking about here is something that that I've, in fact, seen happen in my own family. Uh, My Russian grandmother, uh, we called her Baba, uh, Babushka, uh, she became a Christian later in life, uh, sometime after she'd gotten married to my grandfather, uh, Jedushka, She heard the gospel when she was in a refugee camp in Eastern Europe after the Second World War came to an end. American missionaries were travelling through the refugee camps sharing the good news about Jesus. Uh, A young Billy Graham went on some of those missionary tours. I've got no idea if he ever visited the camp that my grandparents were in. Uh, Not that that matters, who brought the message. Uh, But my Baba heard the gospel and she responded. She became a believer. She became a Christian. But her husband did not. And for more than 20 years, that's how things remained. And during that time, uh, it was not easy for her, but she didn't preach to him. She would invite him to go to church, uh, but she didn't pester him to go. What she did do was pray for him, shed plenty of tears, and she lived a compelling consistent life before him. It took more than 20 years, but by the grace of God, he was eventually won over. Now, of course, it was God's work in his life, and he heard and responded to the gospel message too, but without a doubt, God used his wife to win him over without words. 20 years is a long time, isn't it, to persist in prayer for someone? And of course, there are no guarantees, but that is the hope. And so Peter appeals to these women who are married 
to people who don't share their love for Jesus, to try and persuade them through what he calls the beauty of their lives. A beauty that Peter says isn't external, but it's about the beauty of a character that's being transformed to look more and more like Jesus. That's what Peter describes in verses 3 and 4. He talks about beauty and he says, Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewellery or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. A truly beautiful person is a person whose very life is attractive, where you've been so affected by God's love for you that other people can't help but notice that. Now, it seems like the ancient world was just as susceptible to distorted perceptions of beauty as ours is. Now, we may not place so much emphasis on braided hair, uh, but we've got no shortage of our own issues on this front, do we? In 2017, Australians spent more than a billion dollars on cosmetic surgery procedures. We might think Americans are the world leaders here, but Australians actually spend 40% more per capita on cosmetic surgery procedures than Americans do. I was only reading in the paper this morning about a a boom in uh, fillers, um, and they attributed it to a phenomenon they're now calling Zoom face. Uh, So many people have their faces uh, writ large uh, for everyone to see, including themselves, that there's this growing level of discontent with people's own appearance. And so it's booming the, the market for people going and getting fillers done, apparently this cosmetic surgeon was saying that 40% of his cases are men. But social media influences, the rise of platforms like Instagram and Snapchat, all these things are not helping, but the problem is not a new one, it just has a different manifestation. So in his letter, Peter here warns us, pleads with us, not to develop a distorted picture of beauty, not to associate a person's worth with external adornments, We know that our world is going to end up focusing on those things, but we should be people who learn to value a person's character above all else. And so he appeals to wives to develop a different kind of beauty, to work on the character of their lives. Now, so far, much of what Peter has said has been directed to the wives, but in verse 7, he has a briefer but still confronting word to the husbands. He writes in verse 7, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Well, here's another one. Uh, I'm just going to jump straight in there and answer the question which should be on your mind. What does it mean that women are the weaker partner? Well, let me tell you what I don't think it's saying. Uh, The most common way that I've heard this explained is to say that it's talking about physical strength. Uh, So men have more testosterone, which means they more easily build muscle, generally have greater bone density, greater be larger. And so it's generally true to say that men are stronger than women. It could be that, but I don't think Peter's talking about physical strength here. Nor do I think he's saying that women are in some sense weaker because they're more emotionally fragile, as is often suggested, which even if it was true, 
shouldn't necessarily be seen as a weakness. I think what he's talking about here, why he uses the word weaker, is because of what he's just said about submission. See, the wife is placing herself in the more vulnerable position by choosing to submit to her husband. And so in that sense, she is placing herself in the weaker role. And I think that makes better sense of the context as well. Remember, Peter's not addressing all men and all women. He's talking about a marriage relationship. And so Peter here reminds husbands to honour and respect their wives. Not in some sort of patronising or condescending way towards the little woman, but because his wife is seeking to honour Christ in how she relates to him. Again, this is not about inferiority. Peter here even points out that these women have received the same life, the same inheritance in Jesus that the men have. The reality is sadly that some men and some church leaders have rather selectively and badly used passages like this one to either justify or ignore abusive behaviour from men towards their wives. Let me be as clear as I can be about that. There is never any place for abuse in a marriage. No place for threatening and menacing behaviour. Husbands are called to the very opposite of that, to loving sacrificial service, to love their wives like their own bodies, to lay down their lives in service of their wives. Now, what I'm about to say will focus on the men, but I recognise that there are times when men are abused in a marriage relationship too. Um, that's true, and I think this ought to apply in both both directions, but the statistics will all tell us that, on the whole, it's men who are the abusers in relationships. Sometimes Christians have failed in this area. We, we've pressured women to remain in situations where they do not feel and were not safe. As a church community, we need to do better than that. We should be prepared to support any woman who wants to get out of an abusive relationship. And can I say that if you are in a relationship like that, please speak to someone about it. You can talk to me if you like. You will not be ignored. You will be supported. As a community, we were to have a zero tolerance approach towards abusive behaviour. And not just physical abuse, but all forms of abusive behaviour, including emotional and financial abuse. And we need to be ready to call out, particularly men, where we find them seeking to control their wives through isolation and intimidation, through threats of abandonment or financial ruin. Now, that's not to say there's no place for counselling, for forgiveness, for reconciliation, but there has to be acknowledgement, there has to be repentance for that to have any lasting and real impact. We want to love and support those men too, but certainly not at the expense of a wife's safety. Now, all of that garbage in a relationship is the very opposite of the kind of relationship that God intended marriage to be. 
a relationship that's as intense, that's as intimate as a marriage, when there are two flawed people involved, is not going to be without its tensions and its challenges, but where there is genuine sacrificial love from both, it works. To quote the comedian Chris Rock, uh, who said this after his marriage fell apart because of his own infidelity, he said, there is no equality in a relationship. You're both there to serve. You're in a band and you have roles that you play. I might want to nuance that a bit, but we'll let that stand. What does that actually look like in a marriage? Well, I don't think I can tell you that. I think it all depends. I don't think it matters who does the cooking or who mows the lawn. I don't think it matters who's the primary income earner or the primary caregiver if you happen to have kids at home. I think it's going to look a bit different in every relationship. And that may even change within your own relationship over the years. How you sort out and negotiate the running of your relationship, your family, well, that's that's up to you. That's between you and God, really. But I do want to say a few things. To the husbands among us, I want to challenge you to think about your relationship with your wife. Are there ways that you are failing to honour her, to respect her? Are there things you need to change? Maybe it is the way that you treat her, speak to her, perhaps seek to control her. Maybe it's that you become a passenger in your own family. You're not taking your responsibilities as a husband, as a father, seriously. You're a bit of a man-child, perhaps, and, well, if that's the case, you need to grow up. Your wife and your family need you to. For the wives, you may need to rethink how you relate to your husbands. Has he become your adversary? Someone that you play power games with? Someone that you seek to manipulate? Have you given in to fear and staked out your rights? Okay, enough about husbands and wives. What about everybody else? Well, in verse 8, Peter puts before us these five characteristics that he says we should all strive to have. Goes this way. Finally, and he's not nearly done with this letter, by the way. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now, he wouldn't say this is an exhaustive list of virtues, but these characteristics are typical of the strange values that we've already seen Peter talk about, that he calls upon us to develop and express as followers of Jesus. And as he points out in the verses that follow, it means that we're not to play tit for tat, to be people who seek revenge. We are to be peacemakers, people who are honest to a fault, people who are a blessing in the lives of others, a blessing to others. And if we're going to seek peace and pursue it, well, we can't do that while we're trying to get people back or by being deceitful. We can only pursue peace as we love people from the heart, as we express 
compassion, sympathy. As we live out humility, the humility that comes from understanding who we are in Christ, that we too are sinners saved by the grace of God. As we put those things into practice, if only we would put those things into practice, we would go some way to avoid that familiar accusation that so often gets levelled at Christians, that we are hypocrites. Wouldn't you love to be a part of a community of believers who worked at harmony instead of division, who went about their business in humility instead of trying to get a recognition and power? who express genuine sympathy for one another instead of apathy. Our lives need to square up with what we say we believe. But they should also be brimming with such love and good deeds that our world might sit up and take notice, that they might see God at work in us. Ultimately, our hope is that people might be won over to Jesus. When they see how those who call themselves his followers live in this world. Would it be fair to describe your life as a persuasive one, as winsome? Is your life a wonderful bit of marketing for the good news about Jesus? Or is it more of a PR disaster? Let's aspire to live in a way that might even win over others as they see the difference that Jesus makes in our lives.